You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The European Union is in crisis. With the advent of Brexit, the election of a U.S. president skeptical of NATO, security concerns on its eastern border, and continued struggles with the euro, experts are uncertain of the EU's future. At FSI's Europe Center, Princeton professor Andrew Moravchek discusses the Union's promise and its peril in the coming months. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Ken Sheeby, and I'm the director of the Europe Center uh, here at Stanford University. Today, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce our guest, Andrew Moravchek, who will today speak on uh, the European crises. So when we asked Andy uh, to visit Stanford, we had, at Stanford, we had in mind getting his view of uh, the long-run challenges to European integration uh, that it faces in light of the stresses caused by the financial crisis, the Greek debt crisis, the refugee crisis, and, of course, Brexit. We did not anticipate a President-elect Trump, and certainly not a U.S. President who, as President-elect Trump did this weekend, would advocate the dissolution of the European Union. Nor did we anticipate uh, that the UK's Prime Minister, Theresa May, would this morning uh, provide her blueprint for the UK's uh, exit from the European Union, including membership in the single market. While it seems perhaps nothing uh, could bring Europe together faster than a Donald Trump interview, uh, the future of European integration is uncertain, and understanding uh, the forces generating that uncertain is of first-order importance for understanding international affairs. To shed light on these issues, we are extremely fortunate to have with us today Andy Moravchek, who is Professor of Politics uh, and International Affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and he is the Director of the European Union Program at Princeton. Among Andy's many seminal uh, contributions to the international relations field, he is the author of arguably the most important book written on the politics of European integration, The Choice for Europe. And this really makes him an ideal person for us to understand Europe's contemporary crises. And I hope you'll join me in uh, welcoming him to Stanford. Thank you, Andy. So thank you, Ken. Um, It's very nice to see so many of you here, and particularly my old friend Gerhard Casper. We go back to University of Chicago days at the uh, start of my career. Um, And um, now, predicting the future is not something academics are supposed to do. Uh, I was reminded of this when I took my first job at Harvard, and one of the things you had to do was go to lunch with the most ferocious faculty member in the political science department there, it was a government, they call it, a woman named Judith Schlar, who uh, emigrated from Riga and, and was never smiled. And she, uh, so she asked me, what are you working on? We sat down at lunch, what are you working on? I said, European integration. And she said, well, I hope you won't try to predict the future because it will cost you tenure at Harvard University. <laughs> right, so, um, uh, and it was good advice, actually. Um, so I'm very hesitant to do uh, the unacademic thing here. Um, and what I've chosen to do is comment on the four crisis, crises. Um, and I hope to give you sort of a different view of them um, and some different things to think about. Um, 
So Jean-Claude Juncker, the, the president of the commission, has coined this phrase, which is only makes sense if you're a French technocrat, a, a polycrise, uh, a polycrisis, um, to describe what's going on in Europe. And a lot of people have picked up on one or another aspect of these. So I'm going to look at four. Um, one is the collapse of European geopolitical influence. So is Europe too weak uh, in the world? And is this going to cause a crisis? The second, the crisis of democratic governance and the rise of Euroscepticism, including Brexit. Uh, the third is migration and immigration and whether that can be managed. And finally, macroeconomic policy um, and slow growth. Now, one thing about most of these issues is that they are important. Um, and that's actually new for European integration, an important thing to remember and to understand why there is a crisis now. Because traditionally, the EU dealt with things that weren't important to anybody, at least not common people. So nobody votes on the basis of whether or not the stabilization force in Macedonia has been properly constituted or whether you're regulating chemicals correctly. But they do vote on things like this. And the EU in recent years has either gotten involved in or been tarred by policies uh, that have to do with some of these things. So you'll see that immigration, um, uh, terrorism, security, use influence in the world, the macroeconomic situation, which is basically these, um, are all important issues in the minds of people um, in Europe. And that gives them a kind of weight uh, that's um, uh, more important than it otherwise would be. Um, so let's take the four crises in, in turn, and let's start with geopolitics. Um, so the argument here for there being a crisis and that crisis being serious, even fatal, for European integration um, is that Europe is a continent in decline. So it's said um, its economic and demographic growth are uh, leaving it behind countries like the United States and China. Um, and it cannot... Um, mobilize itself to even make the most of what it uh, currently has. So the Europeans are divided. Um, they don't spend enough on the military. So this is something that people, everybody uh, in uh, government seems to agree on in the United States from, from Obama to Trump. Um, Vladimir Putin pushes them around um, and so on. Um, this is the, of the four critiques of Europe, uh, this is the one I think is the weakest, actually. Um, Europe is today um, capable of acting together or enough together to get things done in most areas. And it has more power than China or Russia or pretty much anybody in the world except the United States, and in many respects more than the United States. If you think of a superpower as a body that can influence the world transcontinentally in multiple ways, militarily, um, economically, culturally, uh, Europe is the only other superpower uh, out there. Um, now, how to show that? Um, mostly what people do is they look at things like military spending. If you look at military spending, you can see that the EU, taken as a whole, is an appreciable player uh, in the world, larger than China um, still. But this is the kind of graph that people look to because they argue, look, China's defense spending is growing pretty swiftly. Europe is going to be left behind. Uh, Europe can't make the most um, of what it has. Um, 
But there is a strange disjuncture between something like this, which makes the EU look sort of the same as China and considerably less than the United States, and what Europe actually does in the world. So even just militarily. So here are the number of combat troops, forces deployed abroad over the last 10 years on the average. And you'll see there are really two people active in the world, the Americans and the Europeans. Um, China barely. Um, and although we make a big fuss over those little islands in the South China Sea, um, geopolitically, that really doesn't amount to much. Um, the same is true uh, of capa general capabilities. So we read a lot about the Chinese aircraft carriers and naval building, but this is what the world looks like. Um, this is actually not the aircraft carrier you hear about. It's the one they're building because this includes construction. The one they have is a, is a training boat that used to be um, an amusement park off the coast of um, uh, Hong Kong uh, and isn't much good for anything uh, at all. Thailand has more aircraft carriers than China does. Um, and importantly, when you look at position in the world, um, Europe and the United States are the uh, areas that are connected to everybody else by security partnerships and alliances. China has one formal ally, not an ally you'd ever want to have, North Korea. And it has one, arguably one, major security partnership with perhaps Pakistan, but that's unclear. Um, now, even so, um, so, so the, the question then is, what explains this disjuncture between reasonably robust Chinese military spending that you read about in the papers and the fact that China doesn't really seem to be doing very much in the world uh, with that military. Now, part of it is that they use a lot of it. It's a very uh, labor-intensive military. They use a lot of it for domestic stabilization. But the other thing is a basic lesson that you should t keep in mind every time you read a headline about how much people are spending on the military. And that is that real usable power lags military spending by a lot. Think about an F-16 or an, or an F-15, our fighters. We've been building these things now for 40 years, and we're going to deploy them for another 40 years. So that how much military power a country actually has is a function of the experience, the technology, and the, the material that it's built up over decades. And so if you look at crossover points for capacity, um, they're pretty far out there. Uh, remember that 50 years is a long time. 50 years ago, the Cultural Revolution was just starting in China, right? So predicting out 50 years and worrying about China is maybe not a sensible uh, thing to do, but it suggests that China is very far from being what the military likes to call a peer competitor. Same thing is true for economics. Uh, Europe is an important global player, um, and more so than the United... Than, uh, China, bigger than the United States. Now, again, this fact is disguised when you read the newspaper. Because over the last couple of years, I'm sure you've read one or another article that says China is now the biggest economy in the world, right? Now, that's true if you use purchasing power parity numbers. Um, but those aren't very relevant. That's uh, sort of recalculating a country's GDP to take account of what you can buy in the domestic economy. But not really relevant for international power projection. That tells you how much... We lived for a year in China recently. A nanny costs to, to hire for a year in Shanghai, but it doesn't tell you very much about trade, aid, high-technology weapons, and the kind of things that countries use to project force. It also rarely treats the EU as an aggregate. Um, but the most important problem with, with those kind of GDP numbers um, is that 
GDP itself is not um, the thing that um, tells you whether a country has the economic wherewithal to project influence. It's GDP and per capita income. Why per capita income? Because projecting power in the world is a luxury good. It's something that you do once you've satisfied other needs. If you have, imagine, a completely subsistence economy, um, you wouldn't be able to extract very much from that economy. So scholars have actually looked at what the relationship is between aggregate GDP and per capita GDP. And if you multiply them together through a complicated formula that, uh, well, pretty simple formula, actually, GDP nominal <laughs> times the square root of of per capita income, as, as our GATT does, you get something more like this. And this reflects how much real economic influence in the world uh, the US and Europe have. And you can go through all the different ways that countries project power. I'll just take one, which is civilian foreign ex uh, assistance. This is all kinds of foreign assistance. And you can see Europe is the dominant economic actor in the world when it comes to extending foreign aid. And despite all those headlines you've read recently, these are new numbers, so it takes that into account, about China extending foreign aid or engaging in uh, foreign direct investment. Let me give one final example of this power. Uh, Gerhard and I were just talking about it. And, and that is the crisis in Ukraine. Um, so uh, let's just remember what happened in Ukraine. Um, Putin uh, announced that he wanted to annex or make independent a whole swath of Ukraine. Um, there were uprisings in an even larger swath of Ukraine. Um, separatists took over uh, quite an extent of territory. And a couple of years later, Russia's left with this. Right? Set aside Crimea, which was not a hostile takeover at all, zero casualties. But just this here, right? This is what's left uh, that Russia controls. Um, the war is essentially over. Um, so if you look at casualties in eastern Ukraine, Ukraine per month, um, they've gone down to a very small level. And what was the... Now, most of this is due to the fact that the Ukrainians really fought, and Putin, for reasons that we could go into in questions, didn't want to fight over Ukraine. But the West also had a resolute policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Putin. And what was that policy? That policy was to use non-military means to combat Russia. The West said from the start, we won't get involved in this conflict militarily. Um, but instead, uh, they put sanctions on Russia, which cost something on the order of $50 billion per year in lost trade for the West. They gave aid to Ukraine. Without economic aid to Ukraine, the country would have gone belly up. You could forget about all this discussion of whether they can fight. That's $15 billion per year. Um, they signed trade agreements with Ukraine to try to reorient its economy, particularly in the energy sector, toward the West. And they engaged in very intensive diplomacy. Every single one of these things, the European contribution was 10 times more, and I mean 10 times more or more than that of the United States, right? And so insofar as Western policy was reasonably successful uh, in Ukraine, that is all the Europeans. And it's all non-military European power. Ask yourself, just to cite another example quickly, why it is that the United States had sanctions continuously on Iran since 1979. But it was when the Europeans put sanctions on them uh, in just in the last few years that an agreement was signed. There are lots of reasons why that uh, happened, but one of them is the fact that Europe is the largest trading partner of every single country in the Middle East. And its uh, policies matter. Okay, so Europe is still an appreciable international actor and it uses that power. What about 
um, the second crisis then. Um, and that crisis is the crisis of Euroscepticism or democratic legitimacy of the EU, um, and particularly the example of Brexit. So let's start with Brexit since it was in the news last night. Um, so a simple answer to why Brexit happened is because Cameron called a referendum. Oddly enough, it's actually quite difficult to get your country into a position where you pull out of something like the European Union. You could not have done it by putting, making it a general election issue and electing a government that was Eurosceptic in Britain because there wasn't a Eurosceptic majority in Parliament. Um, referenda have the curious characteristic, particularly when they're about um, low salience issues, um, that they generate very erratic political behavior and then it becomes self-reinforcing. So. Um, I'll come back to the question of whether other people might do this, but I think it's not so likely. But since Theresa May just gave a speech, and I made some slides because I had an advanced copy of that speech, um, let's just look at what the British position is in the Brexit negotiations. The reason is because what it shows you is that Britain really has very little intention of pulling out of the EU, if by that you mean leaving behind the substantive policies that Europe it pursues in common with Europe. It wants to change the form of them and maybe change a few policies. We'll talk about immigration. Most of it remains the same. And that's the British negotiating position that says this. So let's talk about um, the negotiating position. Um, here are the issues that remain entirely unchanged. The most important policy of the EU, uh, free movement of goods, services, and capital, remains identical. I put in little quotes from Theresa May's speech here. I hope she actually said them um, as, as they were written in the advanced copy. Um, defense and security. So actually she spends 10 paragraphs in the speech talking about how she wants to keep defense and security relations with the EU the same because they're so essential uh, to Britain. Homeland security and law enforcement. It's hard to imagine any British government, but particularly one led by the person who was in charge of homeland security discussions with Europe, pulling out of those kinds of arrangements. And even current immigrants, interestingly, her position was we should negotiate right now an agreement to keep the status of current immigrants uh, to migrants from Europe to Britain or British living on the continent exactly the same as it is. So nothing changes there. Then there are a set of issues where you have procedural but not substantive changes. So there's the question of what the legal status is of the um, uh, uh, European Union rules. And her position is that they will literally verbatim write all existing EU law obligations, particularly single market ones, into British law and enforce them by British courts. Um, so, but that is a, a, a substantive change perhaps in the future because it would mean that a British parliament could change those rules. Workers' rights, the truth is that not very much EU law on workers' rights actually applies to the UK at all, um, but she also says that will say exactly the same. In fact, she proposes to make it even uh, stronger. Then there are things that do involve substantive changes, at least in part. So there's the budget. Britain wants to get away from giving large sums to the EU, but read the fine print. For the programs she wants to keep, which include things like university cooperation, um, possibly agriculture, um, 
Britain is prepared to negotiate payments. Future immigrants and free movement. So Britain really wants to control the number of people coming into Britain from the EU. Um, that is a major change, and it's probably the major political reason why Britain did this. Um, but at the same time, I think most European countries are going to go to similar policies over the next five years, as we'll talk about it in a moment. Um, and finally, the common commercial policy, the customs union. She wants to move it to a free trade area, which would allow Britain to strike trade agreements with countries from the outside the European Union. But if you read it carefully, it's unclear whether that's a negotiating threat that would be invoked if they didn't reach agreement or something she actually intends to do. Because if you create a free trade area, you end up having to engage in extremely complicated negotiations about things like rules of origin and where products come from and things like that. It's not clear that the British are actually committed to that. So those are the substantive changes. And then there's some things that are not clear. Corporate taxation. So she threatens in the speech to lower corporate taxation in Britain if the Europeans don't agree. But it's not clear that she wants to do that if they do reach an agreement. Agriculture. It's unclear what the status will be. Certain kinds of regulation. You could think about them as single market. Um, elements of the single market, in which case they would remain exactly the same, uh, she says. But you could think of some of them also as something different. So it's unclear what happens then. And then she says, interestingly, she doesn't want to do this now. She wants to wait. That they can reach some kind of agreement and then implement over a long period of time. So you add it all up. And Brexit isn't quite as much as it appears to be. Um, and that is because um, it's quite essential to every member state in it. Most of the things that the EU does, particularly in the case of a country like Britain that's already exempted itself from certain things like the euro, is something um, that is pretty much unavoidable. Now, you might say, well, Britain's going to hang tough for political reasons, and they're going to bargain hard with Europe, and they might get more and undermine the EU. But the British bargaining position is not strong. So if you look at um, British liabilities, they trade twice as much as a percentage of GDP, more than twice as much, with uh, the EU as the EU trades with them, which makes them quite dependent on that trade, more so than the people they're negotiating with. Puts them in a weak position. If they don't reach an agreement, they have to revert to just WTO rules. And the problem with that is Britain is a big service exporter, banking, accounting, uh, insurance. And those things are not protected under WTO law. So they can't do that. Um, there's the question about British nationals in Europe, which are 1.5 million of them, including all those people retired in Spain. So that's why she wants to um, uh, negotiate that quickly. Um, and there's the fact that um, no agreement, the outcome of no agreement favors Europe more than Britain. There's a strict timetable of two years, and Britain has to reach an agreement with 27 people who all have to agree among themselves first. That is not going to be a situation in which Britain uses what few threats and assets it has to extort a good deal. Um, the only thing that's kind of interesting is this um, argument, which is the only thing that was really new in the speech, that she might use lowering corporate taxation to try to get at the Europeans. But if you look at corporate taxation rates in Europe, you see two things. First is they vary a lot. So that implies that countries can live with other countries with low corporate taxation rates. And secondly, the UK is already quite low. So how much lower can you go, particularly if you're a conservative government committed to budgetary um, balancing the budget, which her government is? So then there's one other question about 
this, uh, um, about the uh, Eurosceptic wave, and that is, will it spread? So Britain's going to negotiate this um, agreement with Europe that leaves a lot of things the same. Um, but might other countries uh, jump on the bandwagon and start to do this? And here's a map with, in black, appropriately, uh, the countries that have strong Eurosceptic parties. And you can see there are quite a number of them uh, in the middle of Europe. Could one of these trigger one of these situations where you'd get um, a push to pull out of the European Union or fundamentally renegotiate it? Now, here we get into the um, issue that I raised before, that it's actually quite difficult for a government to get to the point where it poses that question, should we fundamentally either pull out of or change the EU to its people? Um, it doesn't tend to happen in a general election. And in almost none of these countries, as I'll show in a moment, is the Eurosceptic Party powerful enough um, to achieve that. Um, no sensible policymaker in Europe who isn't a member of a Eurosceptic Party is going to call a referendum after what happened in Britain and elsewhere. And if these Eurosceptic parties go into coalition with a larger party, they tend to get destroyed, which was the case um, in Austria uh, when they uh, were much weakened for, for a decade as a function of that. Um, and there's very little evidence that somebody, you hear a lot about France, um, that somebody like Marine Le Pen, um, who is a, uh, the Eurosceptic Front National, can, uh, can win the second round of a general election. Now, we've learned not to trust polls uh, recently. Not people from Poland, but uh, polling data. Um, but um, nonetheless, you can see that in most European countries, the, the number of people who uh, vote for these extreme right-wing parties is pretty small. Um, and you look at a place like Hungary, where it's actually rather large because there's a Eurosceptic party in power. And that party is extremely careful not to call into question the European Union. It did hold a referendum. It held a referendum on the question of whether the EU should impose quotas for immigration, which we'll discuss in a second, on other countries, um, and, um, uh, which was a policy that the EU didn't actually have, and um, won that uh, as a kind of domestic political gambit, but never raised the issue about Hungary pulling out of the European Union. So it's hard to imagine another country getting to that point. Um, so we can discuss this domestic political crisis more, but I think that's uh, also overrated. So what about migration? Uh, this is much in the news, people in boats coming across the uh, Mediterranean. Um, this causes a domestic political crisis in many countries who don't want to take migrants. It causes a security crisis because it's linked uh, to terrorists. Um, and it calls into question the most popular policy in the European Union, which is the policy of open borders, not having borders. So those, I'm sure all of you have traveled in Europe, and you know that you don't even know when you cross the, the Franco-German border anymore. Um, and some people say, well, this would be called into question if foreigners started migrating to Europe in large numbers. And indeed, that's what happened in uh, 2015, uh, so here's the statistics on asylum claims in Germany. And you can see that they went up in the 90s, they went down for a long time, and then they went to an unprecedented level um, in 2015. So the idea is that this massive influx will simply swamp 
the political ability of both domestic and EU institutions uh, to manage it. Again, I see this as uh, exaggerated. Uh, the migration crisis is important, but it's manageable. And ironically, it's manageable in part because the other European governments, although they don't like to talk about it out loud, are moving in certain respects very much in a British direction of being more hostile toward incoming uh, immigration. You don't see this if you read the headlines about Europe because most of that discussion is about the question of how to distribute migrants who are already there among European countries. Um, this is a political sideshow. Uh, in fact, the European Union has no intention of distributing migrants across countries. It would be nonsensical since the migrants decide where they want to go on their own and would move from the place that they were put. Um, the European Union did agree to distribute some migrants, but only one-tenth, actually closer to one-twentieth, of the migrants who came in in 2015. Um, and the Hungarian government um, was so skeptical of these efforts uh, that it ran this referendum against the principle that you could move migrants from place to place, even though it would have benefited from that effort. Um, so the first thing that's the matter with this... So the real issue is not... Um, can you distribute migrants among European countries? The real issue is, can you keep them out? Because, in fact, there is no political consensus left, even in Germany, that very heroically and admirably took almost a million immigrants. There is no consensus in Europe for massive increases in migrants. So can you keep them out? And the answer to that question is yes. And all you have to do is look at the last year. So this is that spike that we saw before in the middle, late summer, early fall of 2015. Migrants mostly go in the summer. Um, and you can see that after that, it went down. And then we have the EU-Turkey deal I'll talk about. And now, the migrants that came across that route you read about in the papers, uh, from Turkey to Greece to Europe, which is the dark blue ones here, have all but disappeared. The only ones left uh, are the ones coming from uh, Libya uh, to Italy across the central Mediterranean. So how did the Europeans do this? They made this by making Europe harder to reach and unpleasant to be in once you were there and doing deals with countries around Europe uh, to repatriate people. Um, so Europe has its own walls, though they don't like to call it that. Uh, this is the wall uh, between Greece and Turkey, which was built in the last 10 years the wall between uh, Greece and Bulgaria. Um, actually, this is Hungary, Serbia, Greece, Turkey, Bulgaria, Turkey. Um, they've come up with a lot of policies uh, to catch and repatriate people and also criminally prosecute those um, who give them transportation. So here you see people being sent back to Turkey. Um, and as I said, they signed agreement with Turkey um, to send people back, and now um, Federica Mogherini, who's the high representative for foreign policy in the European Union, is just city hopping in northern Africa, signing similar agreements with all those countries. Um, this isn't pretty. It isn't the kind of thing that we, from an ethical standpoint, like to see, but it's the only political, viable political strategy for European countries. Um, and the European Union is essential to it because the European Union provides uh, the coordinated um, 
forces, naval boats, legal procedures, and everything uh, that permit it uh, to happen. Uh, the European Union is also essential, and you'll notice that because uh, Theresa May instantly said she wanted to maintain this policy in place um, at combating terrorism. And I just want to point out one thing about terrorism. Uh, it was actually much higher in terms of deaths back in the 70s and 80s than it is now. Uh, in Europe. I'm sure Gerhard remembers as I do what it was like to be in Germany when there was domestic terrorism and you had young draftees pointing machine pistols at you at, at, at roadblocks and so on. Um, so this, is, this was manageable then and I think it is manageable now. It probably involved much more surveillance of Europeans, which they don't like, understandably so, uh, but it will happen. So the final crisis, and the one that I think is unlike the ones we've talked about, more serious than people make it out to be these days, is the crisis of macroeconomic growth uh, and the euro. So Europe has suffered uh, over the past decade from extremely low um, growth and uh, uneven growth that has particularly imposed austerity uh, on southern countries, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, Italy, Greece. And um, this is tied up. Uh, with the euro. Uh, it's tied up with the euro because uh, the Europe takes, euro takes away the tools that southern countries had, devaluing their currency, uh, pursuing an independent monetary policy, an independent spending policy that they used to have um, to stay even with uh, countries in the north. Uh, the bet that people made back 15 years ago was that uh, countries would converge toward common macroeconomic policies, common wages, common, uh, or common wage growth levels, uh, common inflation levels, and so on. That has not happened. And the result has been uh, disproportionate uh, pain and suffering in countries like Spain and Italy and Portugal uh, with low growth. Now, interestingly, even this is exaggerated. So one of the more interesting statistics is the level of per capita economic growth in Europe, the U.S., and Japan. And Europe, even the Eurozone, actually has higher per capita growth than the US or Japan over the past 10 years. What does that tell you? It tells you that a lot of those good GDP statistics you see about the United States are driven by population growth, not driven by real growth. So you could say, well, even though uh, the Eurozone is not helping, you can see that because it um, is, is lower. Um, it's uh, doing pretty well compared to what you could be expected to do. Uh, the problem is that that growth is not evenly distributed within Europe. Um, so if you look at um, the per capita GDP or expending, you see these countries in the north, um, Sweden and Denmark, who are outside the Eurozone, Germany that's in it, um, who are able to effectively undervalue their real exchange rates inside the Euro. Um, seeing uh, GDP or spending increase, and other countries see it either stagnate or go down. Um, and for a country to go a decade with, uh, without any growth or with net negative growth um, has tremendous social and political consequences. You get the rise of radical or non-system parties. Uh, you get entire generations of people who are not integrated into the workforce. Um, and you get an inability uh, to deal with other problems because you are obsessed with uh, that problem of macroeconomic 
um, stability. One of the other side effects is that this undermines the EU. It undermines confidence in the EU because you have a very salient issue, which is macroeconomic growth, where the EU is credited uh, with making things a lot worse for certain countries. Um, so you see, when you look at um, answers in Europe over time to the question, does the EU conjure up for you a very positive, fairly positive, neutral, fairly negative, or very negative image, that right about 2007-2008, that number uh, ten drops by about, you know, 30%, 40% um, of the total. And the total negatives go up, uh, and the neutrals uh, are in the middle. Um, it doesn't really matter how you ask the question, you get the same result. So here, how much trust you have in institutions. Notice, interestingly, that people always have, and still do, trust the European Union more than their domestic political institutions, their national parliament, their national government. Literally, you ask British people, do you trust the Parliament in Westminster or the European Commission more? And they will say the European Commission. They always have. But that split um, has gone down. It used to be quite a difference, and now it's down to just more or less the same. And people don't much care for the Parliament in Britain uh, or anywhere else. Uh, elected politicians are probably the least popular people in our society. So that's not good news for the EU. And you can see also when you ask people whether they feel like they control their destiny or have a voice in the European Union as an institution. Um, that Now this is, breaks it down by country. And the question is, please tell me uh, whether you agree or disagree with the statement, my voice counts in the EU. What I want you to look at here, so this is the people who think it doesn't, uh, people who think it does. Um, what's interesting here is who's down here at the tail end who doesn't think their voice counts in the EU. It's the Greeks, the Cypriots, uh, the Italians, the Spanish, um, the UK, of course, but so Portugal uh, in this bottom half, right? Countries that have been disadvantaged by this Euro system because they are quite right to say that their uh, voice doesn't count in the EU um, and that this policy has disadvantaged them. So uh, it's my belief that this uh, ultimately, this macroeconomic dysfunction in the EU is the most serious problem because it undermines legitimacy in the EU. Um, it makes it impossible for countries to be um, helpful uh, with European problems or problems elsewhere in the world. Uh, even in Britain, uh, in the Brexit discussions, and Bre remember Britain is not a member of the Eurozone and uh, has had reasonable growth in recent years, uh, they have... Uh, a lot of people polled said they thought the economic dysfunction of the EU was a reason to vote no. So, to close, um, you, uh, you can see that not all crises are as bad as they're made out to be, um, that they vary a lot. Um, for a crisis to be really threatening to the EU, it needs to be very serious, and there needs to be no policy solution that you could reasonably see countries coming to. In some cases, like geopolitical influence, it's not serious. And in other cases, like migration, it is serious, but there's a policy solution uh, that countries not only could grasp, but are grasping. Uh, the euro is the case that I find most troubling. Uh, Europeans tend to muddle through rather than engaging in any fundamental reform, because most plans for fundamental reform, like large fiscal transfers from Germany uh, to Greece, are patently 
uh, unworkable politically. Um, so that gives you a kind of balanced picture of the EU, but I think one that makes these crises appear uh, a little less serious uh, than they're made out to be. And that underscores a basic optimistic point about the EU. Most of the policies that the EU deals with, like the single market or regulation, things like that, are not being called into question. This is the most successful voluntary effort in international cooperation in world history. It's been around for 60 years, longer than most established democracies. And no matter what happens with these issues, um, it's not going anywhere soon. So you can read more about this um, on my website. Uh, so a little bit of academic backing for some of these non-academic ac academic claims. And I'm open to your questions. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.